Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On Commons People this week. As the ruins of Karelian lie around her, will the Prime Minister act to end this costly racket? Karelian collapses. Does the government have questions to answer about the failing firm? Uh, I've, I've dreamt for a members-led Labour Party, and I think that's what I hope we were, we're going to get. Is it the end for centrist dads as momentum sweep to power on Labour's NEC? A young woman has been effectively exploited by my political enemies who feel that they can't challenge me in open political debate. And the UKIP leader's relationship status changes to it's complicated. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett, and I'm joined this week by Kate Forrester. Hello, Kate. Hello. Mr. Paul Wall, how are you? Hi there. And Ned Simons is here as well. Hello. Hello, Ned. How are you? Not bad. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Good. Uh, Let's crack on. The outsourcing and construction giant Carillion, which employs around 20,000 people, went into liquidation this week. It has public sector or public slash private partnership contracts worth a staggering £1.7 billion and held 450 contracts with the government. The group's massive portfolio Includes providing school dinners, cleaning and catering at NHS hospitals, building HS2, maintaining 50,000 army base homes for the MOD, but it's been struggling under £900 million of debt and a £587 million pension deficit. Here's Jeremy Corbyn discussing the matter at PMQs. These corporations, Mr Speaker, need to be shown the door. We need our public services provided by public employees with a public service ethos and a strong public oversight. As the ruins of Karelian lie around her, will the Prime Minister act to end this costly racket of the relationship between government and some of these companies? And here's Theresa May's response. Right Honourable Gentleman said earlier in one of his questions, it was the government's job to ensure that Carillion was properly managed. We were a customer of Carillion, not the manager of Carillion. And that's a very important difference. And it is also important, it's also important that we have protected taxpayers from an unacceptable bailout of a private company. So, Theresa May there saying, it's not the government's fault, we're just customers. And Corbyn saying, show all these private companies the door. I feel like they're quite extreme positions, both of them. I feel like saying something to do with us and get rid of everyone. Is that, Ned, is that too extreme? Is that where we are now? Well, I think it's quite good for Corbyn, isn't it? Because obviously May's argument is, well, a lot of these deals were done under Labour. But no one can accuse Jeremy Corbyn of being part of the last Labour government. I don't remember him standing up from the back bench making massive interventions in favour of PFI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if anything, the fact that the Prime Minister is saying, well, we were doing this and so was Blair and Brown, it kind of accentuates Corbyn's kind of anti-establishment position, doesn't it? He's saying, I'm not just against the Conservatives, I'm against this entire consensus of PFI and, and everything that was going on completely. So politically, it's quite a, quite a nice moment for him, I think, if the actual what's going on isn't so great. 
and I think that actually is a good point about clear red water. Labour and the Tories on this. That's what Corbyn wants. He wants, you know, yet again on austerity on lots of other areas. You know where Labour now stands is is the message. It's really clear. Tories like public-private partnerships, Labour don't like them. Uh, and John McDonnell, to his credit, at last party conference, sort of flagged a lot of these issues up and said, look, you know, we want to take back in-house as much as we can. Now, obviously, there was a garble at the time about how much they could afford and whether or not it was feasible, but at least they were politically in the right territory. They didn't know this was coming down the track. If they had, I think they would have made even more capital. But um, the, the, the point is that Corbyn, yes, has always been against PFIs and PPPs, public-private partnerships, just as Ken Livingstone was for the London Underground way back in 1999 and 2000. The tube now that everyone rides on in London, if you live in London, you know, has got these brand new trains, um, new facilities. Now, that's all done through a private finance initiative. Um, it's been hugely expensive, but the risk was borne by the private sector. At the time, Livingston said something that everyone thought was really radical. He said, well, you don't need to do this. He was trying to persuade New Labour and, and, and Stephen Byers, the Transport Secretary, you don't need to do this. We can have the state do this at very low interest rates because we can issue special bonds and the government will guarantee them. So we can get all this investment, but the state will guarantee it. That's a better way. Now, he was ignored by New Labour, um, and obviously the Tories under Cameron um, continued this kind of thing. But it's worth going back to when Labour started PFI and continued Major's PFI. It was Lord Lawson who reminded everyone on Monday that actually he was dead against it. He didn't think it was a very conservative thing to do because he thought that it would reward big business, not small business. It would take off it was a bit of a con because it took off the public balance sheet, all these real spending liabilities. And he felt that overall it wouldn't work. And we've got a curious situation now where you've got Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Lawson in agreement on public Nigel policy. Lawson, of course, Chancellor under Margaret Thatcher. Kate, what do you think this says for the Tories? Because Labour have out there still of what they would do, what they believe politically, where they ideologically sit, where they practically sit. I've not heard a big defence this week for... PFI. I mean, I guess th this week of all weeks you wouldn't hear it, but then this week of all weeks maybe you need it the most. Why aren't the Tories getting out there and trying to defend this system and just say this is just a rogue thing, this is a one-off, whatever? Um, I think it's quite hard to argue with the um, the sentiment that Corbyn's put forward this week about you know the hundreds of small firms that are now facing ruin who are tied into contracts with Carillion and stuff. I think it's still quite an emotional issue at the moment because loads of people are are being quite seriously affected by it. Um, the Tories' kind of main defence or main sort of good point that they're putting, trying to push it appears to be, oh well, we've not fine, we've not um, given the green light to a public bailout of Carillion. It's like, oh, okay, g great, that's good, but yeah, we've not seen a huge defence, and I guess maybe that's because at the moment it feels a bit, it might be a bit raw, it might look a bit insensitive, maybe given given the sort but of I just impact it's it, had. It's funny that we didn't even... I just think for years now, the Tories... If, I think that's the referendum campaign, for example. I know that wasn't the Tories, but it was stronger in. They didn't want to take the fight on immigration to the anti-EU to the anti -EU people. I feel like it's an argument they couldn't win. I feel like with the economy as well, they don't want to take the fight to Labour to it. Why do the Tories keep ducking these things? Well, you can see why. If you've got a massive collapse like this week, it's not good for the brand, should we say, for public-private partnerships. What that perhaps they ought to be saying, and maybe Philip Hammond 
we'll be doing this next week, is saying the benefits of these things, which is that, you know, the private sector takes a lot of the risk. Uh, if things go wrong, then they get hammered, you know, and it's been proved it. You know, no public money has been lost. It's the private sector and all the shareholders that are losing out through this collapse. And so they, they might get on the front foot a bit more next week saying, actually, this proves why this is actually quite good for the taxpayer. They take the risk and they take the fall. Um, but I think that... The, I, I was listening this week on Monday to a select committee where we had two very senior Sir Humphreys. You had uh, Cabinet Secretary Jeremy Haywood and you had John Manzoni, head of the Cabinet Office, who were both quizzed in detail about what happened in Carillion. And the, the way they spun it, they were incredibly dismissive, if not defensive, about this whole collapse. But they were saying that somehow the, the public sector has finally got its act together. It's worked how to do these contracts. It's worked how to, how to make sure that we don't lose out if things go wrong. And and Haywood conceded 10 years ago the public sector was nowhere near in that position. Even two years ago, Manzoni said we wouldn't have been able to do this kind of thing. But Manzoni then came out with some line that if he'd been a politician would have been hammered by. He said that the civil servant in charge of Carillion had, quotes, played a blinder. And um, Paul Flynn, you know, was quick as a flash, said, you mean played a blinder as in uh, had their eyes covered up? Uh, and uh, and the civil servant got a bit irked. And he said, no, 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 I meant played a blinder because the civil servant um, actually put in place all these joint ventures to make sure that there are other people after the profits warning for Carillion, that if it if things were going wrong, at least there was some safety mechanism to make sure it didn't affect everyone. Well, let's talk about those joint ventures, because that's been the government's defence on this, is that since the, pro the government guidance is when a company issues a profit warning, you start giving them contracts, right? Because you start thinking this company might not be around for much longer. Okay? But Carillion offered profit warnings. They were given more contracts. Joint ventures. So the idea, as Paul said, is if one half, mm. one company involved falls apart, the company picks it up. But there was one contract that was given out after the profit warning, which wasn't a joint venture. So is the question to ask now, would the, the suggestion is the government would try to put work Carillion's way to keep it going, to keep it look like a viable mm. company? Yeah, that is what people are asking. It, it might be also plays into the idea of there's now a lot of companies where they're, they're the only company that can do it. If you look at the same things with G4S... Um, Circo, these massive companies where if they're not given the work, there's no one else to do it. If Look at the Olympics when G4S messed up the security and the army had to step in because there wasn't another company the government could go to to do that job. So I think that that's why Corbyn's bringing up those particular firms that are kind of too big to fail, as it were. And do you think that there's, a, just finally on this, that there's a whole generation of people who became politically aware, uh, politically mature, if you like, during the financial crash mm. and on the wake of the financial crash, and all they see is actually big business getting all the profits, the public sector taking all the risk, actually, and the government they just have to step whenever it fails. And actually, that the, there is a kind of change in the mentality now, people, as there was in '45 and as there was in '79, and now we're seeing it again now that actually people do not just accept as read this kind of economic authority. Yeah, and if you think back to the Tory party conference in October, Theresa May was making this kind of point that she conceded that Jeremy Corbyn had changed the economic consensus in the country. And you know, her argument was, oh, we need to fight back against that because he's wrong. But we've not actually seen, like you said, Owen, we've not seen them fight back. We've not seen them make the case for why the kind of changing consensus about the public sector it has happened. And it's because of the financial crisis, particularly amongst young people who are kind of 30 and below, who did grow up in the financial crisis. And I think that overall, Corbyn is trying to push this idea that, look, it, we should reverse the way we think. It used to, it's for years it's been 
public bad, private good. He wants it to be switched right around, public good, private bad. But the one person this week, it wasn't the Tories who was defending private sector involvement in public services. It was a, an old Blairite, Phil Wilson, MP for Sedgefield, who succeeded Tony Blair. And he was um, in the Milan Institute in, in the East End uh, of the university there uh, as part of John Rentoul's sort of exploration of, of new Labour. And this is one of five guys who got Tony Blair selected for that seat in Sedgefield. He's got a, a role in history, no question. And he succeeded him. And Phil Wilson said, look, um, as far as he's concerned, when Blair introduced private treatment centres for the NHS, there was lots of sort of, you know, shock horror amongst them on the left. He said, but it delivered results because it brought in extra capacity the NHS couldn't deal with. So he said he was on the doorstep knocking one of his constituents and a woman had an eye patch and he said, oh, what's happened? And she said, oh, um, I've just been for a, a, a cataract operation and it was done in record quick time. And he said, there's a really good example, a working class constituent who got a public service thanks to extra capacity from the private sector. No one on Labour's benches is making that case other than Phil Wilson right now. Let's move to Labour now as Jeremy Corbyn backing group Momentum have swept to power on Labour's ruling National Executive Committee. Um, Paul, you've been following this story and it seems that within, what, minutes, seconds, hours of taking control, there was controversy over um, the disciplinary panel that that makes up how Labour looks into things, anti-Semitism and stuff. Just talk us through that. Well, yeah, there was. I mean, what happened this week was that the NEC got three brand new extra local party members and Momentum candidates swept the board, including founder John Lansman, and they filled those new three slots. The very next day, the NEC met properly for the first time since its new 39-strong body was created. And straight away, Momentum basically flexed its muscles. And the long-serving chair of the disputes panel, called Anne Black, who's a a soft-left candidate and has always been backed for many, many years by the left, um, suddenly Momentum turned against her and said... um, Look, actually, it's, your time's up. We need someone called Christine Shawcroft, who's also another veteran left-winger, to replace you. Now, the real reason, it's not without getting to all the processology, the real reason they did this is that they felt that actually it was, quote, time for a change and that there'd been some simmering sort of resentment about Anne Black's role in excluding party members from the leadership contest in, in 2016. As, and to be honest, anyone who's in charge of disputes, the committee and Labour Party, is always going to get lots of brickbats because there's lots of internal battles, there's lots of rows of, is it right or is it wrong for someone to have said something that was uh, um, allegedly racist, allegedly anti-Semitic, allegedly homophobic or sexist? Are there any defences? Are there being is, is it being used as a per? or a witch hunt against someone on the left, the language they're using? Or is it legitimate? Are these people real scumbags and need kicking out? So whoever's in charge of that process is always going to get a kicking. And it happened to be Anne Black that finally it was payback time, it seemed, this week. But I think overall what was significant was that you remember when Neil Kinnock said when Ed Miliband got uh, the Labour leadership, he said, "We've we've, we've got our party back. A lot of people... The Blairites felt, well, actually, be careful what you wish for, because what's happened since is that the left really think they've got their party back. And on the NEC, they're really going to show how that really is the case now. Kate, you come from that 
bastion of left-wing hotbed political activity of Merseyside, which is very famous, of course, in the 80s, having a, a militant council there. And this perception, like you said, that Paul said there, of, of the, uh, the left having the party back, what's that going to mean practically then? How does that change anything? Does it not change anything at all? Well, I suppose the next stage is um, whether they look seriously at reselections of MPs, um, which is obviously going to be the next kind of massive hurdle. Um, I think some people are sort of expecting it. Some people say that it's definitely, you know, they're not going to go that far. It's not going to happen. Um, I think from a few MPs that I've spoken to, um, the most worrying aspect um, of this is that a lot of them are still getting a lot of abuse and they've they've stopped coming forward with it now because I guess they don't want to look like they're they don't want to look like they're kind of making a big deal and constantly complaining. But there's a lot of them who are still receiving quite serious threats. Um, some of them are receiving anti-Semitic abuse, and I guess the real test of um, of the new makeup of the NEC is how they're going to deal with that as well. And then, what sense do you get of of the appetite for? Deselections, reselections. I mean, there's been some selections of, of parliamentary yeah, candidates already. There's a uh, candidate in Corby, a woman called Beth Miller. She's not on Yeah, that's interesting, isn't Corbyn it? There was a, a couple of stories around this week after the NEC results about how, whilst momentum kind of does now have a grip at the, at the centre, but a lot of the parliamentary selections, they're not winning those those selections. So it's, it tends to be people who have been around for a long time in the constituencies who have more personal relationships, who know the local activists, who are getting selected to be the MPs, not the kind of new uh, momentum left-wing candidates. So it's interesting, I think, to watch over the next few years if momentum can push on from the NEC and the centre of the party now, or are they now the establishment and weirdly kind of the, the, the in the country you've got the kind of people who still don't agree with them and are still getting the, the seats and the MPs. It's true. I mean, in, in the recent rush of parliamentary mm. reselections, because Corbyn, don't forget, wants to get all these people in place in case there's a snap election. He wants candidates in place really early, even though there might not be an election until 2022. He wants them in. Um, at, uh, six out of the 23 selections that have taken place so far, only six have gone to momentum-backed candidates. That's about mm. a, just less than a quarter, just over a quarter. And... Um, it, I was talking earlier this week to people who are in the sort of centrist wing of the party and they were saying the real reason for that is because, as Ned says, it's about personal relationships, long-term relationships, activists, um, and the fact that unlike NEC elections, which are all online and you could just click a button, mm. this involves turning up in person, it involves actually meeting people, it means being on the ground regularly. And obviously a lot of momentum people are starting to do that now. They're, they're, there are a lot of really big local meetings taking place, but um, it so far hasn't materialised into reselections that are in momentum's favour. And just finally on this, what does the Blairite wing need to do now? Because the, the Blairite wing, the Progress wing, the Centrist tavern, whatever you want to call it, have spent, since Corbyn's been elected, as far as I can tell, basically having a whinge, right? And not really actually putting together a coherent vision of what they want Labour to be, what they want it to do, how they want it to run the country. It's just been, you lot are unelectable. And then the general election shows, even though they didn't win, it was more popular than they thought. Isn't it time for the progress lot to start doing something a bit positive? Yeah, I think so. I think before they're waiting, particularly with the snap election, the assumption that the Corbyn, that Corbyn and his side of the party would lose, and that would in itself prove why progress and the so-called right were correct. Obviously, that didn't happen. So I think, you know, if there's not an election until 2022 now, perhaps I need to kind of still make their case, but come up with a, a new programme. 
for a few years down the line rather than just like you say look like they're whinging they don't really yet have the sort of intellectual heft either mm. that they they previously used to have they don't make any big arguments in terms of policy any terms of how does the left of centre, whether it's the centre-left or whether it's the further out left, how does it cope with this massive problem of globalisation and delivering for ordinary people? How do you correct a lot of those imbalances, the inequalities? How do you do it? And very few people have come up with the, the answers. Jeremy Corbyn's got one very clear answer, which is a lot more state control. But for, for people in the centre-left of Labour, it's been much more difficult. And also, I think, whilst obviously it's the most important thing that's happened to the country for a long time, I think a lot of the perhaps intellectual side of the, the right have been distracted, for want of a better word, by Brexit. Yeah, so their definitely. time is going into arguing internal fights about staying in the single market and the customs union, rather than thinking of domestic politics about how the economy works. And that's where they're focused, perhaps having given up on the the rest of it. And in a way, time. I think both sides are going to wait for Brexit to get out of the way before this start battle hmm. starts again. And so we shall uh, keep an eye on that, as always. Um, now, earlier this year, I went over to Iceland. Uh, just because it seemed like a nice place to go. And I spoke to some people there, because Iceland's not in the EU, but it's in EFTA, and I spoke to some people there to get uh, their views on Brexit. Here's my little report. I'm here in uh, downtown Reykjavik, January the 1st, 2018. I was supposed to be on my holidays, but I thought I couldn't come to a country like Iceland, which is in EFTA, which is perhaps one of the things the UK could be joining, without speaking to some of the, the locals here to find out their view of the EU, of Brexit, and frankly, whether they give a damn. So uh, here's the first guy I spoke to who works in a tourist office. What has people in Iceland made of Brexit? Is that registered at all here? People are aware that Brexit's going on? Oh, I think we're aware, yes. And I think we look at it like in a... I don't know, like a negative-ish light. Okay. But then we are not part of the European Union. So, I don't, I don't know, like... I feel like the one... I, I know quite a few Brits I worked with abroad and stuff, and they're all, like... seems to be the young people are more against it. Yeah. So I'm just like, yeah, I don't think it was a good thing to do. And obviously, you, like you said, you guys aren't part of the EU, but you're part of EFTA, so you have some arrangements with the EU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's lots of talk that Britain could join that model. Um, would you would you recommend that? Is that a, a, a good uh, thing to join? I, or? I, I, I have no idea like how that works really, so I can't really comment on that. But I'm sure you could join that, yeah, and be part of the trade mm. commitment or whatever it is. And and what's the view of the EU from Iceland? Because obviously the EU would quite like Iceland to be a full member so they can get hold of your fishing. I think that's one of the big things that they want. And obviously you guys are like, no, that's a big part of our economy so do people view the eu with a bit of suspicion here or i think it's a pretty 50 50 and but more against eu for that reasons but also like we would have to take te- like the corona the currency yeah. we have is like people have doubts about that in the future so joining eu we could take up the euro but then again there's all this trouble with the eu and then decided to pop into uh, a place which sold a lot of Icelandic wool, which, believe me, you need here because it does get very, very cold. I spoke to this guy, Viking, to see what he made of it. So obviously, as you know, at the moment we're going through Brexit in the UK. And obviously, Iceland is not part of the EU, but it's in EFTA. So it's got this kind of slightly strange relationship with the EU. Is there pressure in Iceland to become a full member of the EU? Or are people happy with the way things are, do you think? There are different opinions. There's like okay. one of the major political parties split into two. Or what, like, the, it's first and then, like, got a sub-branch, basically. Okay. Of the party with almost the same uh, policies, except they want to go to the EU. 
So it's really the split. Right. Yeah, I'm not, it's probably 60-40 maybe. Right. No, yes. And it's one of the big issues around fishing, because obviously if you were to join the EU, that would open up the fishing waters around Iceland to yeah. for other nations, and obviously fishing is a big part of the Iceland yeah. economy. So is that one of the big issues? Yeah. Farming, yes, farming. Right, okay. Farming subsidies and all, everything around there. And obviously Britain's going through Brexit at the moment. There is talk that the UK might, might join EFTA and be there alongside Iceland. Iceland. Would yeah. you... Do you think Iceland would benefit from that, or would it not really make much of a difference? I don't know. It's a numbers question, really. It's like it's a numbers question rather than like something you and I can answer. I think <laughs> economists and stuff like guys like that should answer, right? And finally, do you think that um, it's a perception of Brexit as a good thing, or do people in Iceland not really have an opinion on it? Is it not really something which is played out here at all? Bad thing because of how the pound just fell. So I'm here in Reykjavik's Punk Museum, and your name is, sir? Alvar. I just wanted to get a sense of what the view of Brexit was in Iceland, because some people might say it's a kickback against the establishment, like some of the great punk heroes you've got on the wall here. Was yeah. it seen as a bit more self-destructive than that? Man, I really don't care. <laughs> you really? I really don't care. <laughs> I think it's a big mistake to get out of the EU thingy, but everybody to his own. Really. Yeah. And obviously Iceland's got a kind of weird relationship with the EU where you're kind of, you're in EFTA, so you have some of the rules, but not the others. I understand there's some people in Iceland who do want to be part of the EU. What's your, what's your view on that? Well, I think we should go into the EU just because it's bigger. So. Yeah. But there are a lot of guys here who just want Iceland to be Icelandic and don't want the EU and all that things. And yeah... I, I really don't care. <laughs> so it's not much. It's not an issue because in in the UK, Brexit, the EU, it's dominated the news for years, even yeah, before yeah, the referendum, yeah. right? But here, you guys, you just it doesn't really. Nah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I think that most of the Icelandic people are really are not really political on it. Yeah, you know, they they they, they go vote, and then when it's finished, they just go home and drink a coffee and. They, say fuck off. <laughs> it's gonna be the same as the last time, so why bother? So the sense from the, the few people there that I spoke to was that uh, Iceland doesn't really care too much about Brexit. It's quite happy in EFTA. There is a sort of a small pro-EU movement, but that would mean giving away control of their fisheries, which, of course, is a, a mainstay of the economy here in Iceland, especially since the financial crash of 2008. But it could be that we need to get to know Iceland a lot better. If we join EFTA, we'll certainly be the big boy in that group, along with Iceland. So there'll be some, some tough negotiations there, and it might, uh, it might change the dynamics. And maybe we'll all be starting to get to know Iceland a bit more. Yeah, a little report from Iceland there. They didn't really care, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't really care, care did they, Ned? No. <laughs> Was it a waste of time? Um, what the honeymoon? No, or the, the, right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interviews. No, it's great. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. little punk guy. Yeah, you didn't care, did he? No, he didn't oh, care right. at all. Well, there we are. <laughs> Next week, Norway. No, not really. It's fine. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on, shall we? Yeah. Any, any questions about Iceland Twenty One? Uh, How much is a pint? It's about eight quid. Wow. Norway, it's like twenty quid. Outrageous. Wow. Seriously, it's bad. Right, that's his okay, quiz. Cool. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's move on now, shall we, to uh, UKIP. Good old UKIP, under fire UKIP leader Henry Bolton claimed his controversial ex-girlfriend's leaked texts were doctored after being spotted having an intimate dinner with her just days after claiming their relationship was over. The anti-Brexit campaigner was seen giving kisses on the cheeks to Joe Marnie while the pair dined in the exclusive National Liberal Club in the heart of Westminster. 
in leaked text messages published early this week, Marley reportedly said Prince Harry's fiancée Meghan Markle would taint the royal family, that she had a, quote, tiny brain, and that black people were ugly. She was also reported to have made comments about the sexual abuse of babies while discussing animal rights, messages which the youth leader claims were doctored. I uh, spoke to him as I left the National Liverpool Club, and he told me that uh, she had been exploited by his political enemies, and the controversy over her remarks was beginning to fade away. Here's the clip. The comments that, that Joe made that become public, uh, many people found very extremely distasteful. Do you think that even keeping up a friendship with Joe undermines your position as leader? I've, I've said very clearly. I mean, what's what's happened in in the, in the last weeks or so um, has has actually. I mean, it's starting to to fade away now. Um, there's going to be more news coming out tomorrow in relation to how some of this information was obtained and the fact that some of it was doctored before it was published. Um, this is fact. These are facts that are going to be uh, out there in, in, the, in the coming hours. And um, so, yeah, I've said very publicly that, you know, although the romantic side of our relationship is now over, um, I'm supporting Joe and her family and trying to put things back together again. Absolutely. Um, because, I, you know, what's happened is that a young woman has been effectively exploited by my political enemies who feel that they can't challenge me in open political debate on my leadership or my politics. And uh, what I'd say to them is, you want to challenge my leadership, you want to challenge my politics, do it in an open forum, do it openly, do not do it covertly and exploit anybody in doing so. Um, because to do so is despicable, particularly the way they've gone about it. And Miss Marley, would you like to say anything in response to that? Or are you you're grabbing lots of... Okay, thanks very much, guys. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Thank you. Good it's a strange, isn't it, Paul? I know that reading from your war zone this week, you're slightly wait for someone to explain to you why her views yeah well, why should are. why should her views matter she's not elected yep. she's in a relationship with a party leader but there's no evidence whatsoever that that henry bolton shares these racist views or these bizarre views about you know um animals and 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 child sex there's no evidence whatsoever he agrees with it so why why was this even an issue and it's an issue because they're such a tiny party. And it's it seems to be that everyone's saying, look, it's yet more evidence that actually he's a distraction. He can't get on with his job. Um, and, but that seems to be the best case for, for why this is a story. I have to say, I, I do find it kind of odd, really odd that he's being held accountable for something that's not his view. It's a very old school scandal, isn't it? Text and stuff aside, mm. like yeah. Yeah. man leaves his wife and yeah, kids yeah. for attractive glamour model it's very tabloid isn't it perfect pictures mm, for the papers obviously yeah. as well and uh, you know he entered the door didn't he when the sun first exposed him yeah. <laughs> he entered the door his, her parents and uh, they it's, couldn't believe um, their luck the sun Owen obviously this is kind of your area is the thing about this that they were looking for an excuse as it were to get rid of him and this came up and that's a reason rather than it actually being about her views or does that is that part no, of it no that's completely it? right I mean Bill Etheridge, who's one of the MEPs, who was, I think it was a sports spokesman. He's a sports he spokesman, was, isn't yeah. he? Big front him. bench role. Anyway, uh, anyway, he stepped down and he says, nothing to do with the personal life. I just think that Henry Bolton's rubbish as leader. Yeah. Well, you know, they were having an election a few months ago and he won it. So it clearly is about the personal life. That's the kind of foot mm. they're doing it on. A lot of people think he sold himself as this family man who's a safe pair of hands and now he's done whatever he's done. But... I mean, did he? I'm not sure he did particularly mention his family that much. I mean, he talked mm. a little bit about it, but it wasn't his his whole pitch. And you just, you know, you separate the personal from the political. I think the fact now is that having said at the beginning of the week, the romantic side of our relationship is over, was the phrase that he used. Mm. Some people will say that it's perhaps not. 
Um, it just leads to the idea of trustworthiness, I guess. If you you know, if yeah. you're telling people the right thing. Um, so it's not the original thing anymore. It kind of builds into exactly, the, the if you, you could end up saying he's lying about whatever it is. Exactly. That becomes part I mean, of it, it just, as well. But like I said, UKIP is so small now. Their, their membership is down below 25,000. They were losing 1,000 members a month. <laughs> They've got no money. I mean, I've been told by, by someone in UKIP they can't even afford to have another leadership <laughs> contest because it costs about £60,000 and they just and literally haven't even got that money. If it's not him, who who would it be? Well, Anne-Marie Waters, who Which was... Which she be back in well, the Well, no, she's left the party. Right. She left... She was the, the sort of Britain first... And she is quite, like, she is, far yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. She basically has the... <laughs> yeah. You can't yeah. get rid of one leader because his girlfriend's got far right rules, yeah. but then elect the one the yeah. person that actually does have so, them But she's left the party now, so she couldn't... Sure. She couldn't have it. So, I mean, they're running out of it. I think you're up next, Ned, aren't you? To <laughs> me, the week. I think Kate's doing it in some time in June. So they really are running out of people. And the question... I mean, someone in UKIP even said to me yesterday... Do you know what? I think it's over now. It's just, it's just right. what is the point of the party? Mm. It's become so tainted. They work so hard, whether you agree with it or not, mm. to get rid of their view that they're a party of racists. Mm. They, they they obviously did a good enough job of that to get four million people to vote for them. Because I don't think four million people in this country are racist. But now it's just their tentative grip mm. on credibility seems to have just slipped away. It's annoying for some of us who've got a financial interest in UK <laughs> keeping going, but there we are. Um, let's move on now to, uh, in case you missed it, Miss Kate Forrest, who should be seated to my right. Hello, Kate. Here I am. Very shooting stars, that. I, I like know. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kate, with your face like a bag for the weasels. Um, All right. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> that was shooting so, yeah, stars. Exactly. Can I just point that out he's not being very anti-Kate? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what have you got for us? Uh, so... This week, the Health Select Committee was hearing evidence from NHS Digital and um, from a variety of um, campaign groups who lobby on behalf of um, domestic workers and people who struggle to access healthcare in the UK. Um, and they revealed that migrants, um, lots of migrants, um, are scared to seek medical help in this country. Um, because of a memorandum of understandings that the NHS and the Home Office has, whereby the Home Office can request people's personal data from the NHS in in, in immigration investigations. So, um, one woman who um, works for Voice of Domestic Workers, um, which represents household workers, said that one of their members actually died because she had a persistent cough, uh, was too scared to go to the doctor, um, had no idea what was wrong with her, um, just thought she had a cold that she couldn't shake off and she died because she didn't seek medical help, um, which is obviously horrendous. Um, and another, a GP who works for Doctors of the World, which is an organisation that um, helps people who struggle to access healthcare access it, um, says that they have scores of pregnant women coming to them who are too scared to go to the GP, too scared to go to an antenatal um, clinic or an appointment. Um, some of them are presenting to them in labour, having not sought any medical help whatsoever before then. Um, and MPs, the MPs on the committee were sort of understandably horrified by this um, and said, you know, this is literally a life or death situation. Why is this happening? Um, the government's um, on-balance excuse was that uh, they're not trying to stop anybody accessing healthcare, but they have to balance that with having a robust immigration policy and the public interest around that. So that is quite remarkable. So were really. these people, that, the examples you've given there, were these people who were uh, people who had the legal right to be here or were they people who didn't have the legal right to be here or were you not sure? We're not sure. Right. I think some of them probably do, um, some of them maybe not. Um, but obviously, because of the narrative around kind of 
immigration and toughening up toughening stances on immigration um even those that you know may be perfectly entitled to be here are worried about seeking help in case especially with brexit i guess that's kind of magnified the issue as well so it's really sad um horrible story really yeah, absolutely horrible. Is there any suggestion from the MPs if they make any re- any recommendations to the government? Is there work ongoing? Well, they've asked for um, a proper breakdown of the numbers of requests that were made and how many of those requests have led to an actual sort of deportation or or action being taken by immigration authorities. Um, because I think they've the MPs were concerned because they've been given a kind of um, overall number of requests that were made but we don't actually know how many of those requests um led to anything and obviously the point that they're making um is that it's leading to a breakdown in trust between clinicians and their patients as well because obviously doctors have to tell people there is a chance that you know if the home office asks us for your details then we'll have to give them to them so obviously that is going to magnify an already quite serious situation it seems is this the the representation that that the what's actually happening when people talk about health tourism must be stopped and people come here and abusing our NHS. This is the reaction to that, isn't it? It's people before they can't go and get health. Well, it's the flip side of that, yeah. isn't it? Um, and obviously, some people would say, you know, to be a play devil's advocate, you know, if you're, if you're not here legally, then, you know, there are going to be consequences in your healthcare. You know, you need to be upfront about it. And, you know, you as soon as you anything looks remotely illegal, you need to declare yourself to the authorities and then everything can be sorted out. I think one of the problems has been that um, in some of these um, detention centres that people have been put in when they've overstayed, um, the conditions there are obviously not exactly wonderful. And a lot of people, whether it's parents with children, the coalition government and the last government tried to, thanks to uh, the Lib Dems, tried to reduce that number. Um, but I think that's part of the problem. A lot of people are just scared because they, they worry about what the consequences will be. But it's it's a really, really difficult debate either way. Yeah, and I think there was actually a front page of, I forget which paper it was, the week, which was, you know, two and a half thousand illegal people coming here to have their children, kind of really ramping up that rhetoric. And I struggled to I hope that even people who are very tough on immigration don't want people in this country, whether they're legal or illegal, to die because they're too scared to go to hospital or have serious health problems. Surely, you know, you can be tough, so to speak, on migration without people's lives being put at risk. You can be humane. Why not? The problem is it's for the NHS staff who have to deal with this Mm. as well. That's that's what came out of that select committee, wasn't it? Their, Their interest... They're not interested in illegal, legal. They're interested mm. in the number one priority, making people better. And, you know, are they really now being turned into border guards, people in the NHS? That's the question. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for that, guys. Much appreciated. And we'll be back next week. Uh, what are we going to be discussing next week, Paul? There's loads of stuff coming up. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. Find that next week. Politics. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. 